Our text this morning is, is very familiar verses that we say each week as we come to the Lord's Supper. We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. So if you have your copy of the word with you, turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we begin reading at verse 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we are all, for we all partake of that one bread. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this day and for these familiar words. As we come to the preaching of your word and seek to worship you and consider the profound truth and mystery of the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge that we need your help. We pray for the assistance of your Holy Spirit. Take these familiar verses and breathe fresh life into them for us. Grow us, if only in but a small measure, in our understanding and appreciation of the feast you have prepared for us. Draw us close to you and to one another as we come to the table this day and feed us upon the grace of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, who gave all that we might have all that we need. And this we pray and ask in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. It's clear that I'm a bit distracted. Things are a bit fuzzy in my head this morning. I pray that the Spirit would attend the preaching of God's word and that that would not be a hindrance as I speak. For we speak of a mystery, something difficult to articulate and put our arms around, something that has been difficult for the church to be completely unified in, though the church has always agreed that the Lord's Supper was given by the Lord Jesus in a sacrament to be observed until he returns. Scripture reads, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And we find these beautiful and comforting words in Psalm 103. And I hope that, just as an aside, most of you have had opportunity to view and ponder some of the early images coming from the James Webb Space Telescope. I'm just curious. Have, have you seen those pictures in the news and in the media? Oh, I have got to send some stuff out to the church, don't I? Oh, this is, this, this. raise your hand, Larry. I know you've seen them. Just a little bit. Okay, okay. Anyway, this is a space telescope that, that is bringing us um, some just glorious detail to view as, as we peer into the heavens. And don't worry, I'm not planning on preaching from the headlines this morning, but rather from the unfathomable grandeur, glory, and mystery of our Creator God. And my illustration is falling on mostly deaf ears this morning. <laughs> but that's all right. So, even though you haven't seen that first image, which which made a lot of headlines and was splashed everywhere. It was filled with just wondrous detail 
of thousands upon thousands of galaxies in this one picture that the space telescope um, took and sent back to Earth. It was filled with spiral, elliptical, and lenticular galaxies with peculiar and irregular shapes, and it was just absolutely beautiful. And as, as, as I was looking at this picture in all of its beauty, and it's something you could actually spend hours doing, began to realize that the picture represents just a tiny portion of the sky. This astronomers helpfully gave us something we could wrap our minds around, said if you held just a grain of sand in your hand, arm and held it out to the sky, that grain of sand represented the small patch of sky that was contained in this first image that came down from the space telescope. And that little, little tiny patch of the sky, beyond it were thousands of galaxies. And as you ponder this, you take a moment and you say, well, the Milky Way galaxy is but a medium-sized galaxy. It's 100,000 light years across in diameter. And there were thousands of these things in that one little tiny speck of the sky. And truly, our minds are stretched beyond any sense of human proportion. And the Lord our God spoke all of this into existence, out of nothing, by the word of his omnipotent power. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? These doxological words from Paul we find in Romans 11 are not the product of an enlightened exasperation and grasping, but rather they are the Holy Spirit-given words that describe a God who is beyond our understanding. Back to Psalm 103. The Lord's mercy is great toward the, those that fear him. How great? As far as the heavens are above the earth. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Why? Why does he do this? For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. He never forgets that we are both body and soul with minds that think and remember. He knows that we are weak and needy and that we need nourishment and strength in both body and soul. And so we need to hold tightly to this understanding of who God is, how beyond comprehension are his ways, and how profoundly he knows and loves us. And he loves all of us, body, mind, soul, and spirit. He doesn't just love our spirits. He gave us bodies, and we look forward to the resurrection of these bodies and the life everlasting. He knows our frame and he knows all of our needs. He knows that we require regular nourishment or we begin to perish. And he knows that we are forgetful and need to be reminded of the important things, the important stories to re that remind us of who he is and what he has done for us. And so he has given us 
the Lord's Supper. As we turn then to the Lord's Supper, I would like for us to this morning consider five propositions concerning the sacrament that I hope will grow us in appreciation of the significance and importance of this means of grace. If you bear with me through this, I trust you won't find it to be some thick theological treatise, but rather a reminder of our Lord's goodness, even though mysteries will remain and there are some hard things to consider. These five propositions we will consider this morning regarding the Lord's Supper are, first, it is a misunderstood feast. Second, it's a memorial feast. Third, it's a nourishing feast. Fourth, it's an anticipatory feast. And finally, it is a fellowship feast. First, a misunderstood feast. A somewhat uncontroversial definition of the Lord's Supper, at least historically speaking, might be the Lord's Supper is an act of worship taking the form of a ceremonial meal in which Christ's servants share bread and wine in memory of their crucified Lord and in celebration of the covenant relationship with God through Christ's death and resurrection. Just a, a simple definition. In our fallen condition, however, we often fall short of comprehending what God has revealed and misunderstand. Misunderstanding and controversy in the church soon follows. And, and as we lean into the various aspects of even this simple definition, things get a bit more complicated. Our desire is, I trust, or at least should be, to be completely faithful in all that God has revealed regarding this sacrament, both in understanding and in our application, without going beyond what God has revealed. For as Deuteronomy 29, 29 reminds us, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Consider what our confession states regarding the Lord's Supper from the Westminster Confession, chapter 29, paragraph 1. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing of all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. That's a mouthful. There's a lot there, but these passages, the passages dealing with the Lord's Supper that we find in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 are what was the source for this particular confessional paragraph. It was an attempt to synthesize and summarize the teachings found in scriptures. In these passages, we find the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how of this sacrament. These, these five W's and one H are considered the questions that need to be asked 
in basic information gathering or problem solving. So let's answer them. Who? Christ himself instituted the sacrament. What? Bread and wine. When? The night he was betrayed, and we are to do it perpetually. Where? In the upper room, in the context of the Passover feast. Why? As his memorial. And how? With thanksgiving. And since we have answers to these questions, it's fair to wonder why there is so much misunderstanding surrounding this meal. Why has this one simple sacrament been such a point of contention and division within the church? Perhaps you're here and you're unaware of the division, and that's good and fine, but hopefully this will help round out your understanding. Scripture doesn't give us just a prescriptive formula for the feast. It also provides descriptive context, which provides us more information that we need to bring to bear in our understanding. For example, in the institution passage we find in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes these familiar words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, so far so good. Nothing controversial there yet. And he continues, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what does this is my body mean? How are we to understand remembrance in this passage? What does the new covenant in my blood mean? How is it that we are proclaiming the Lord's death? And the controversy begins. And when we see Jesus used similar language in the passage that we read earlier from John 6 regarding his body and blood. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And John goes on further to reveal later in the passage that we didn't read that many of his disciples complained and were offended and and even departed and walked with him no more. Even before the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus' words Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, were divisive. And I would say rightly so, and were misunderstood. But Jesus, in that same passage from John 6, gives us the key to seeing the source of the division and the key to undoing much of the misunderstanding Beginning at verse 61 from John 6, we read, When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. When Jesus speaks of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he is speaking spiritual words. And as such, they require the Holy Spirit's help in order to be discerned. 
The words he spoke were spirit and life. But there were some there who heard the Lord's words who didn't believe. They were, we might call, we might call them literalists. They knew the law, that you weren't supposed to touch a dead body or drink blood, but they did not have the spirit. Their literalism didn't fit the scenario, the words that they heard, and so they departed. The words that Jesus spoke were not for them. The words were divisive, dividing the believers from the unbelievers. In like manner, the Lord's Supper is divisive. It is a spiritual sacrament set apart for those who believe. It is not a feast for the unbeliever. We are to partake of the Lord's Supper in faith, hearing the words of our Lord, believing them to be true, for they are spiritual and they are life. We are not to be like the literalist who departed in unbelief. And as we survey the various teachings and implementations of the Lord's Supper, In the church, we find some of the vestiges of this literalist impulse in two very different ways. On the one hand, we have the Roman transubstantiationalists who who teach that the bread and the wine are miraculously changed into the very body and blood of Jesus in the consecration while keeping only the appearance of bread and wine, which then is connected to other errors, including teaching that The pardon provided in Christ's final sacrifice is not made effectual to believers apart from the repeated sacramental sacrifice offered to them by the priest. Now, no doubt, no doubt, this this is an oversimplification of their doctrine, but doctrine nonetheless does have consequences. On the other hand, we find the strict memorialist view. This form of literalism elevates the words, do this in remembrance of me, and minimizes the more difficult words, this is my body, and this is my blood. For these folks, there seems to be a reluctance or difficulty in keeping the physical symbols connected to the spiritual reality they signify. Perhaps there is a rationalist enlightenment mindset emerging in this doctrine, and once again, I have perhaps oversimplified their perspective. But I believe we can begin to see the problem in the spectrum of misunderstandings. For the mere memorialist, the symbols are separated from the reality and reduced to mere signs and therefore cannot do anything. For the Romanist, the symbols become the reality and operate in and of themselves apart from faith and therefore do too much. There is a presuppositional and perspectival difference between these two views. Some some have said this can even be seen in the Catholic aesthetic in that it is visual and material, whereas the Protestant aesthetic is verbal and oral. As such, that's where the uh, Catholics have excelled, even as novelists. Even though it's a verbal and written medium, they are basically imaginative and image-making in their orientation. You could take uh, J.R.R. Tolkien as but one obvious example. And we look historically at the Protestants. They have excelled in books on theology and doctrine. And here we only need to consider the great Puritan writers. Once again, you know, broad brush there. But the truth is we need to excel 
in both of these areas. I believe scripture calls us to keep the physical symbols connected to the spiritual reality they signify and to avoid a false either-or dichotomy. This is why we speak of a sacramental union between the thing and the thing signified, between the bread and the body of Christ and between the wine and the blood of Christ. Therefore, we see there is a sacramental union between the true spiritual benefits offered in Christ's body broken on the cross and his blood shed on the cross and those same benefits spiritually received in the bread and wine as we partake in faith. And it is here we must humbly confess that mystery remains. There, there, is, no, there is no quantum physics that will aid our understanding of how this happens. There is no corollary to this fascinating James Webb Space Telescope that we can point at the Lord's Supper. We have the Word of God, and we are told these are spiritual words that Christ spoke. It is a mystery, and we are to believe. But secondly, it's a memorial feast. We are called to commemorate the Lord's Supper as we do it in remembrance of Christ. But this form of remembering that go, is a form of remembering that goes beyond you know, remembering to pick up a gallon of milk from the grocery store on the way home or remembering to check the oil in your car or remembering to be sure and check to see if there are any armadillos in the backyard that need extermination as Wayne is wont to do. The Lord's Supper is also more than a visible picture that aids us in remembering that Jesus died for us. We greatly impoverish the sacrament when we reduce it to such a naturalistic conception. If we restrict its meaning to the level of an illustration or picture to stimulate our memory, we convert it into little more than a technique to arouse pious thoughts in people. Let me read that again. I believe these are Jeffrey Meyer's words. If we restrict its meaning to the level of an illustration or picture to stimulate our memory, we convert it into little more than a technique to arouse pious thoughts in people. The Lord's Supper is thereby stripped of any mystery and becomes a purely naturalistic stimulus to aid the religious memory. Some commentators have noted that the Greek phrase found at the end of 1 Corinthians 11.24, often translated, do this in remembrance of me, doesn't include the preposition of. The last two words are literally my remembrance or my memorial, so that it could be translated, do this as my memorial or my remembrance. And considering the phrase that way, we might just be pointed into a deeper understanding of this meal. But regardless of the translation, the setting, the setting of the institution of the supper certainly points us to a deeper understanding of remembrance. I trust that you all will recall that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal. We read about the institution of the Passover feast in Exodus 12, where God spoke to Moses saying, so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. 
you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. At the appointed time each year, every household was to take an unblemished male yearling lamb and kill the lamb in the assembly of the congregation. They were to then take some of the lamb's blood and put it on the doorpost of the lentils of the door in their house and roast and eat the lamb. And as you recall the story, those that faithfully observed the Lord's instructions were saved. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Passover meal was to be for the people of God a perpetual memorial unto the Lord for his great deliverance of them out of Egypt. It was a memorial given to that generation and to their children as well. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So for hundreds and upon hundreds of years, the children of Israel commemorated the Passover meal according to the Lord's instruction. They told the story of their deliverance and their ancestors' deliverance. They took the history of the past and brought it into their present reality and worshipped the Lord their God. Their ancestors' deliverance in that memorial became, in a real but mysterious way, their deliverance. God's great benefits were acknowledged and received as their own, and they gave thanks and worshipped him. And so it is in this context, in the upper room at the Passover feast, that Jesus reveals he is the fulfillment of that slain lamb. It is his blood that saves God's people from his wrath and judgment. The Passover meal eaten on the night he was betrayed was to be the last one in that particular form. No more lambs were slain before the foundation of the world. No more lambs were needed to be slain for before the foundation of the world, that lamb that which would soon be slain would be crucified. No more animal sacrifices. No more blood was needed not on the doorpost, nor sprinkled upon the altar. All these pointed to and anticipated the sacrificial death of the Messiah, the very Son of God. And so the body of the Lamb is now seen and received in the broken bread. The blood of the Lamb is tasted and received in the wine. All the benefits, all the deliverance, all of his perfection, all of his divine forgiveness are known and remembered and received and memorialized in the Lord's Supper. It is a memorial feast connected to and inseparable from all of God's wonderful, miraculous, mysterious working in and through the whole history of redemption. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we do indeed remember, but there is so much more that comes to us with this remembering. Thirdly, this third proposition I would like for us to consider is that the Lord's Supper is a nourishing feast. 
Though the portions we provide in this congregation are generous by contemporary standards, I am not primarily here referring to the physical nourishment we receive in that piece of bread and the cup of wine. I am speaking by analogy and in spiritual terms. Even as the bread and wine support us in this temporal life, so Christ's crucified body and shed blood are true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed and nourished unto eternal life. As God made us physical bodies, so he gives us physical and visible signs to assure us that we are really and truly partakers of Christ's body and blood by the operation of the Holy Spirit as we eat and drink in remembrance of him. What does this mean? It means that as we partake of the Lord's Supper rightly, all of the sufferings and obedience of Christ are made sure to us as if we had personally suffered and made satisfaction for our sins before God. And this is where verse 16 of our text comes most particularly into focus. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? As many of you well know, the word here translated communion is from the Greek word koinonia. It could also be translated joint participation or fellowship. As we eat the bread and drink the wine in the Lord's Supper, we are participating in Christ's sufferings in death and in his victory over death. The benefits of his sufferings becomes ours. Likewise, the benefits of his victory also become ours. Thus, we can rightly refer to this spiritual meal as a means of grace, or as Augustine said, visible signs of invisible grace. The bread and the wine in and of themselves are not a means of grace. Simply drinking the cup and eating the bread brings God's blessings to no one. Rather, grace is conveyed through the gospel message presented by and with the elements when received by faith. The grace we receive is presently experienced through our joint participation, our koinonia with the Lord in the meal. The Lord's Supper also makes our intimate fellowship with God a greater experiential reality for us. It speaks to the heart of our relationship with God, namely God's love for us and our love for God. In the Supper, Christ is present communicating to us, You are my beloved child. I laid down my life for you. Now I give you strength to take up your cross and follow me. As Christians, this is the spiritual nourishment we need. And speaking of nourishment, do we not need regular nourishment? Does the Lord who made us and knows our frame not also know this about us? Of course he does. The Lord's Supper ought to be a regular part of our weekly worship. The only argument that is ever really raised against weekly communion is a concern that it may become routine. If we do this every week, so the argument goes, it will lose its power and the people will get bored and will partake of it mindlessly. Now, I don't want to dismiss this argument too quickly. There was a time when I tended to dread the monthly communion service at a former church. After all, it tended to make the whole service last a little bit longer. 
I had to get up out of my seat and go forward, and there was very little teaching on the Lord's Supper, and the invitation included little, if any, of the importance of the sacrament, and there was no fencing of the table, and therefore I held a fairly low view of the table. I had no idea it was a means of grace, that there was spiritual nourishment there to be found. Shame on me for my self-centered spirit and my lack of scriptural knowledge. But consider this. Do you only come together as a family to eat once a month or even quarterly to learn how special and important the family meal is? Do you hug your child or your wife once a month so they won't become too used to it? After all, we wouldn't want such a ritual to become routine. The argument that the Lord's Supper will lose its special character if celebrated weekly, I believe, is simply absurd and largely driven by modern pragmatism. And for the curious, I do believe that Acts 27 is indicative, but also communicates a normative and assumed pattern for the church when we read, now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. The Lord knows our frame, and he provides the nourishment we need as we come together each Lord's Day. The fourth proposition is that the Lord's Supper is an anticipatory feast. In Matthew 26, we read, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In the Lord's Supper, hope is not something we strive for or an abstract concept, but something that we taste presently. In the Lord's Supper, we remember and proclaim Jesus' death. In the Lord's Supper, we share together by faith the saving benefits of Christ's sacrifice for us. And in the Lord's Supper, we experience a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. The Lord's Supper is an appetizer for the feast that will commence on the day when Christ reunites heaven and earth. In Isaiah 26, we read, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day, tears and shame will be forever forgotten. On that day, the smothering, strangling sheet of death that now suffocates us all will not just be lifted, but consumed. On that day, death won't be deferred or deflected, but devoured. All these miseries are removed. And when they are removed, what will take their place? A feast. A feast of the best. A feast for the people chosen from among all peoples. A feast forever. As we come to the table, we are drawn to look with spiritual eyes beyond this moment and this reality to see and taste the consummation of all things. 
We're given a spiritual appetizer, as it were, as we come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and, by, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. And there... There in that setting, we receive from him but a foretaste of the heavenly banquet to come. Our appetites are whetted, and our anticipation for something greater grows. And for those who know, it would almost be unthinkable not to include a quote from Father Robert Farah Capone in his great book, The Supper of the Lamb. In there, he writes, we were given appetites, not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and to hunger to make it great. That is the unconsolable heartburn, the lifelong disquietude of having been made in the image of God. We also find the most splendid dinner, the most exquisite food, the most gratifying company, arouse more appetites than they satisfy. They do not slake man's thirst for being. They wet it beyond all bounds. We embrace the world in all its glorious solidity, yet it struggles in our very arms, declares itself a pilgrim world, and through the lattices and windows of its nature discloses cities more desirable still. Our appetites are wetted. It is an appetizer. It is a foretaste. And I believe these words, at least poetically speaking, touch on the anticipatory nature of the Lord's Supper. Fifth and finally, the last proposition is that the Lord's Supper is a fellowship feast. Returning one more time to our text, we read the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the body, blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. As I mentioned earlier, koinonia can be translated not only as communion, but also as fellowship. If we back up a bit in chapter 10, we see that the point of the whole passage there is that the Corinthians are receiving an exhortation that they should not knowingly eat meat offered to idols because it makes them a participant with the false gods that the idols represent. We should, therefore, purposely avoid fellowship or koinonia with demons. Paul is using the illustration of the Lord's Supper to drive home his point. When we drink of the cup, we are showing our participation and identification with Christ on the cross. There is this koinonia with the blood of Christ in which we share When we take the cup, it is as if we are saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 As we look at what Paul says is the meaning of the bread, we find that it is a participation in or koinonia in the body of Christ. While it may be possible 
to take the body of Christ as Christ's physical body that he sacrificed on the cross on our behalf, Paul's clarifying verse in verse 17 shows us that he is actually writing about the church as the body of Christ. It is the church that is the one body that is made up of the many members. The one bread symbolizes that one body and the breaking of the bread so that each person may partake shows that each person is a part of that one body. When we break the bread and eat, we are showing our koinonia or fellowship in that body. Just like taking the cup affirms our union with Christ, so the taking of the bread affirms our and identifies us with the body of Christ. I would suggest that when we take, partake of the communion at the Lord's table, we not only remember what Christ did on the cross for us, but that we are to be reminded to embrace the koinonia we enjoy with Christ's body, our church family. It is an opportunity, an obligation even, to regularly affirm and appreciate that we are united not only with the crucified Christ, but also with the body of Christ to which we are joined. In the Lord's Supper, we therefore have fellowship in his sufferings, in his ultimate victory, and we have fellowship with one another as his body, the church. So I will close then with another familiar scripture passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we are gathered in your presence with thankful hearts. It is truly appropriate and right that we should all, and at all times and in all places, give thanks to you. But it is especially fitting that we should now, as we come to your table, thank you for your gracious covenant promises to us in Christ. Remember, we pray, our Lord's humble birth, his holy life, his innocent sufferings and shameful and painful death upon the cross. We give you thanks for his glorious resurrection and ascension, apart from which we would have no hope. But we do have hope. And we therefore ask you to keep your covenant with us for Jesus' sake. And come now and nourish us and equip us for service in your kingdom. By your spirit, make the body and blood of our Lord to be life-giving nourishment for your people. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.